0: We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Anthony Bourdain was highly regarded as a chef, author, TV show host, and world traveler, who for many epitomized the essence of cool. I'm Anthony Bourdain. That's right. I write, I travel, I eat, and I'm hungry for more. It has been about a year and a half since the famed food connoisseur died by suicide, unexpected by many, family and friends, and his devoted fan base, and revealed a stark contrast to what many people perceived as the enviable lifestyle that he led. And he did lead an adventurous and exciting life. During his time and his travels, he acquired a number of collectible possessions. Now, some of those items are up for auction. A selection will be on display in Savannah at the Everard Auction and Appraisals Gallery for a couple of days next week. Lori Wooliver is writer and editor and was for nearly a decade Bourdain's assistant. She co-authored his 2016 cookbook, Appetites, and tonight she's going to be speaking at Savannah's Jepson Center as part of a special event called Anthony Bourdain, a discerning plate. But first, joining us from our studio in in Savannah rather to share some of her stories of the late, great Anthony Bourdain. Lori, a hearty welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: So Anthony Bourdain, Tony, as you call him, so Mm -hmm. we'll just flag that, was kind of a towering figure in popular culture. So how would you describe his persona, his on-screen presence that made him the star that he was?
1: Sure. Uh, He was someone that people thought was very cool. I think he came at travel and food writing as a completely fresh voice when he first started. Uh, He was incredibly charismatic, and he had this way of making people feel that if they ever met him, he would be as interested in them as in anything else he was seeing in the world. I had so many people come up to me before and after he died and said, you know, if I could just have a beer with him, I know we would have a really good time and that we would really get along. And he just had that quality.
0: Um, Even before television and media, he was a chef in New York. You didn't know him back then, but what do you know about him as a chef?
1: I met him right at the end of his time working as a chef. Uh, He was always very careful to say, I'm not a world-class chef and I wasn't a world-class chef. I was very competent, working chef for almost 30 years, very good at getting food out fast, hot, and consistent, and leading a group of people and getting them to do what they need to do. And that really is the definition of a great chef, more so than someone who's bringing their incredible creativity to a very small group of diners, someone who day after day after day shows up and gets the job done.
0: Beyond the kitchen that people could visit, he really started getting noticed for his writing when an article in The New Yorker came out. It was called Don't Eat Before Reading This. Why Why did that get him noticed?
1: He sort of blew the lid off what people understood about restaurant kitchens and about how things truly work and this was in a time when the dominant narrative was all about luxury and golf courses and caviar and truffles and chefs with impeccably clean coats and there really wasn't much out there that looked beyond the kitchen doors and he really told the real story in a way that I think made people laugh, probably disgusted some people, but certainly got a lot of attention.
0: Right, there's a line, first line, good food, good eating is all about blood and organs, cruelty and decay. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't take the shine off of it, I don't know what would. And this later became a chapter in his book, Kitchen Confidential, which really broke him out in the media. And he started getting shows like a cook's tour, but actually kept his job at this restaurant where he was working for about a year. I guess he was unsure that his work in the media would would last. Clearly it did. What what do you think made him so successful in that realm?
1: I think it was a combination of factors. You know, he was a very gifted writer. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the looking back on him or this way of trying to summarize him quickly as a TV personality and the chef. But he was an extraordinarily gifted writer, very excellent storyteller, funny. Uh, he had all kinds of literary references to draw on uh, while still being very down-to-earth and never pretentious. Uh, he he was conventionally very handsome. I think people reacted to his sort of good looks. He uh, was very, very funny. And was willing to listen to and engage with people who didn't necessarily share his views or his experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: As you said, he, he could make friends with anybody in Thailand or Tennessee, as we see in, mm-hmm. in his television work. But we do have this image of him as kind of cool, like an original thinker, an explorer,
1: loves a good meal and a good drink. How did he see himself? I don't think he saw himself as cool. I heard him many times try and disabuse people of that notion, or he would say, maybe I was cool when I was young, but I'm a dad now. You know, I got rid of the earring and the leather jacket, and, you know, I'm just trying to do a good job and uh, act my age. He uh, was a much more gentle and generous Person and more sensitive than I think was always telegraphed on camera. Mm. Uh, He could be a little awkward, which to me is very endearing.
0: How did you come to know him? You were working for Mario Batali and doing magazine work. How about working with Bourdain? How did that happen?
1: I first met him in 2002. I was hired to do recipe editing and testing on his first cookbook, which was called Anthony Bourdain, Leal Cookbook and then there was a period of time where i went on to work for magazines and then i had a child and wanted to find some part-time work i worked i reached out to him and a number of other people and asked if they knew of anything that might be a good fit for me and he said well my assistant is actually leaving I know it's maybe not what you wanna do, but would you consider being my assistant? And I said, yes, right uh, You did, so that
0: wasn't quite the job you were looking for, I wouldn't imagine. Why, no. Why'd you say yes?
1: I knew him I, a little bit from our work together on the book, and I knew that he was a solid guy, generous, not high maintenance. Uh, the way that he described the job sounded very low key. I could do it from home. And I thought, well, let's give it a try. You know, I know he's a great guy, and I bet there'll be some interesting opportunities down the road. And I was right.
0: Yeah, so this, he also really helped foster your career in some other ways. How how would you say that worked out for you?
1: It was great. And he was n- not just with me. He was very good about nurturing the people around him. You know, if somebody... Did good work for him. He tried to do what he could to keep them engaged, to keep them challenged. So a lot of my job was making restaurant reservations or handling logistics and communications. Uh, but he was really generous about creating opportunities for me. So I started line editing some of the books that he published under his imprint, which was called Anthony Bourdain Books. That was an imprint of Echo and eventually he offered me the chance to co-author a cookbook with him which was fantastic and and definitely kept me engaged I, I would have done that job forever you know I was happy to make dentist appointments and uh, you know car maintenance appointments for the chance to do uh, more engaging work
0: Yeah, what at this point you're getting to know him not just his calendar so what was he like as a as, as a boss or a human or a friend
1: he was, uh, you know, as I said before, generous and mm-hmm. more gentle and quieter than I think people might expect. I think it takes a lot of energy for a person to be on camera, to be constantly meeting new people and dealing with the sort of overwhelming outpouring of fan interest. So there would be times we would be riding in a car for an hour or so, and we might have a great 10-minute conversation and then 50 minutes of comfortable silence. And as a fellow introvert, and I think I can say that he was, uh, that made perfect sense to me. So I think we w- it was a good fit for both of us.
0: I'm speaking with Lori Willever. She's a writer, editor, and was Anthony Bourdain's longtime assistant. She's going to be speaking at the Jepson Center tonight in remembrance as part of an auction of some of Bourdain's private personal items. He had also been very candid about previous struggles with drugs and addiction. But we do see him on TV drinking beer, which is unusual for a former addict. So off camera, I wonder how he felt about being seen as this figure of recovery.
1: I think he was very careful, and in my experience with handling, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, requests mm-hmm. to speak to groups or to be uh, a figurehead for a certain type of recovery, he was very careful to distance himself from that. I think he was aware that his form of recovery from narcotics use was not, the norm and not the accepted way that people tend to recover from these things. And he was never wanted to be the poster boy for anything, really. He was very careful not to be labeled an activist or a journalist and certainly not someone who could uh, offer advice on how to overcome drug addiction. Well,
0: there is an episode from The Layover. This is he goes from city to city and comes to the to find the special spots in them. In 2013, he highlighted Curly's Fried Chicken, the Octopus Bar, the Earl, Holman, and Finch in Atlanta, and the expansive options along Buford Highway. We also hear a clip when he visits another legendary Atlanta location. Let's hear that. One last stop in Atlanta. Where else would I be? Ponce Highland neighborhood
1: and the Claremont Lounge. This place should be a national landmark the most beloved institution in the entire city. A
0: place of Renaissance era beauty an erotic and sophisticated nightlife, where the shots flow out in tiny plastic cups. That's the Claremont Lounge, a legendary strip joint in, uh, or, or gentleman, or whatever club. Actually, that's one of the places where you find the ladies who lunch sitting cheek by jowl with the, you know, the tattooed set at the Claremont Lounge. And you were working on a new book with him last year, a travel book. What was the vision behind that?
1: The vision behind our travel book is sort of a look at the world through Tony's eyes. You know, he's seen so much of the world. So let's highlight some of the best things that he's seen in his almost 20 years of televised travel. And so we had about two or three months of work into it before he died. And so that's something that I've had to finish up on my own in the last year. And that'll be coming out in 2020.
0: Well, that's an interesting exercise for you, sort of mm-hmm. picking up on work that you started together. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, this is, it was such shocking news for everybody when he died in, what, June of 2018. I think, what was it like for you seeing this outpouring of sadness and tributes on social media to somebody who had been your friend and other people only knew by the warmth of his reputation?
1: It was really surprising in a way. I think I'd lost perspective on how huge he was in the world, how far ranging his impact was, because he was my boss and someone that I dealt with pretty much every day. And to see both Presidents Obama and Trump acknowledge his death on that day sort of drove home the the reality of how well known he was, how much his impact had uh spread across the world really. I mean, there were tributes from all over the world and people that he had met and filmed with and people that he had never met in countries he'd never been to. So it was it was surprising and uh a small comfort.
0: Mm. Well, now The other thing that he's left behind in his legacy are actual material items. Amazing stuff going up for auction, wooden sculptures from travels in Africa, Thailand, Colombia, fantastic art from Ralph Steadman, Brad Phillips, John Laurie, uh, and and one particular thing, his knife, his custom-made knife. Can you tell us, is there anything in this big group of stuff that actually stands out to you or a story that you want to share with us about how he got it?
1: Well, the knife in particular is so special. It's every single one of these knives that are made by Bob Kramer in Olympia, Washington. They're made by hand. Uh, generally, customers enter into a lottery system to even have the chance to place an order for a knife because the demand is so great. So this knife is heavy in the hand but not awkward. And the blade is made of 800 hand hammered layers of meteorite and carbon steel and so the uh, sharpness is extraordinary it holds the the edge beautifully and it's just a really beautiful object in and of itself
0: Mm. what will it mean to you to see that knife go to somebody else
1: well the price is such that I know that whomever is the high bidder will really understand and really appreciate the value of this thing. I think that Tony would want someone to use it. He was not at all emotional or sentimental about what happens after death. So I think if anything, he would really want all of these things to be, uh, in use in the world and not sort of held up in a shrine. That just wasn't who he was. He was very unsentimental about the afterlife.
0: And what do the proceeds of the auction go towards?
1: So 40% of the proceeds are going to a scholarship fund that's been established in his name at the Culinary Institute of America, and that is the school where he studied culinary arts. And that scholarship in particular will be for students who are pursuing international studies. And then the, the remaining will go to his estate.
0: You're also helping contribute to Bourdain's memory in a different way, working on another book that started about a year ago in addition to the travel book. What, what is this one going to be?
1: That's right. This is an oral biography of his life. So I'm interviewing about 75 people who knew him well all throughout the course of his life and sort of crafting a new narrative of his life story through the stories that other people tell about him and how they came to know him and spend time with him.
0: Laurie Williver, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Laurie is a writer, editor, and Anthony Bourdain's longtime assistant co-author of his 2016 book, Appetites. She's going to be speaking and sharing stories tonight at Savannah's Jepson Center for a special event called Anthony Bourdain, A Discerning Palette. It's beginning at 5.30. It's part of of an auction that some of Bourdain's private possessions will be featured at. So the selection are going to be on display at Everard Auctions and Appraisals Gallery in Savannah. One of his records, I'll Be Your Mirror by Velvet Underground. We're going to leave you with that as we wish you a great weekend and come back and join us again on Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott.